Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects for the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Kat Hanna, who's very, very kindly offered to chair this evening's discussion. And over to you, Kat. Brilliant. Thank you. Can everyone hear me okay? Great. Thank you. Um, So, hi, I'm Kat Hanna. I am an urbanist in between jobs. Um, I say urbanist because it means I'm not an an architect, even. I have no training. Um, I've kind of fallen into doing stuff around cities. Um, So, it's great to be uh, in a room with a load of architects who hopefully can share uh, some of their expertise and experience uh, this evening. So, tonight's topic is um, a typically broad one, and I think deliberately so, uh, to get quite a broad range of discussion around the idea of diversity, a mix of use, and particularly what role design can actually play in encouraging diversity. And we'll come to the panelists about what they even understand that word diversity to mean. So who's actually going to be joining us this evening? To my right, we have Roger Zagolovich, who was described to me uh, by Steve as the wise man of small development, um, which I think is a brilliant description. I hope Steve doesn't mind me repeating that. Um, But yeah, lots of experience to share and some really interesting examples of how mixed use can work at a small scale. Um, We then have Anna Shapiro, um, who who both teaches uh, at the AA, but also um, is a design partner at Shepard Robson, and probably looks at the slightly larger scale, particularly around thinking about clustering, but also has teaching expertise around housing as well. So definitely bringing in quite a few of those mixed uses. We then have Pedro Gill. So Pedro is founder of Studio Gill. Um, I think they've been going now, I think you said 13 years. Currently based out in Redbridge, tends to move his practice around based on where he's working, which I think is really interesting. So we'll hear his experience about working with various communities as well. Um, and then finally, um, we have Helen um, Avanikartis. Have I got that right? I hope so. Ish. Close enough. You're probably used to it. I'm sorry. We talked so much before, and the one thing I didn't check was that. Um, who is director of the design district. And I'm sure quite a few people in this room will have either read about it, will have hopefully visited it. Um, I think if you were to look for an example um, of a development that is showcasing diversity by design, that is uh, definitely one that would come to mind. And we'll obviously be hearing from Helen about her experience, how you actually operate um, a place like that. So I'm going to kick off, and I'm probably going to invite Anna, I think, to jump in here. Just by opening, when we talk about diversity by design, what are some of the things that spring to mind from your perspective? Can you hear me? Yes. I was just trying to buy a bit more time by turning on the microphone. I think in my mind, it's remaining open-minded and being able to learn from different sources. So not deciding what is acceptable source, 
what is the sort of where the consensus is located, but allowing ourselves to learn from places that are not necessarily haven't been necessarily agreed as the right sources for learning. For example, I, I think one of the questions I would like to pose here tonight would be whether we are sufficiently open to learn from uh, elsewhere, and by elsewhere I mean outside the UK, looking to um, kind of different context where things uh, are happening in a different way, and maybe asking ourselves if what we agreed being the right answer is necessarily the right answer, or are we asking the right question? I'm going to jump right in there. Do you have any examples that come to mind of countries, cultures, where things have oh, been yeah, done differently? Oh, yeah, thanks for <laughs> So, yeah, I only just uh, came back from Berlin a few days ago, and I just couldn't help but feeling that I wish we had the same sort of... Um, we were equally relaxed about truly diverse things, unfinished, rough, things that are continuously evolving and not being afraid of something that isn't quite sterile, finished and polite. But also, I find that sometimes cities need degree of ugliness, interesting ugliness, and I think Berlin is exceptionally good at sort of handling things that are not pretty in a sense that we are here looking forward to that kind of pretiness. Brilliant. And I'm going to pass that on to Pedro as well. I'm probably continuing that theme of, you know, learning um, from, from different locations, from different communities, what, again, mixed use and what diverse can actually mean. Any thoughts from you? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Just checking. Um, so we were prefacing the conversations earlier about when, when the phrase or the word diversity is used, I think it's important to be specific. The diversity now, at the moment, in the current zeitgeist, diversity seems to be used as an all-encompassing word. And we need to become, I think, more specific about it. Are we talking about ethnic diversity? Are we talking about economic diversity or, or diversity in the size of businesses? I think that that's an important thing. And framing it in the context of um, sustainability in that 10, 15 years ago, sustainability was banded about. And, and generally what people meant was environmental sustainability and and today it's no longer relevant or valid to just say sustainability we need to be specific for example cultural sustainability environmental sustainability um, economic sustainability so I, I would encourage the the audience and everybody to go away now and and take that little nugget away that we need to become specific about what we mean by diversity um, and then to, to 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 stay on topic really and to talk about other diverse contexts. I mean, I'm personally very interested in Latin America. So I, I, I hail from that continent. I was born in Colombia, raised as a London and educated here in the UK. And I often go back home. I'm multicultural. I have two homes, London and, and Colombia. But I, I draw on it as a source of inspiration. And um, um, in terms of textures, colours, the global south, I think, has, has an incredibly rich design territory that we're only really beginning to wake up to here in, in Europe and, and in London. There are some niche architects out there that are inspired by these kinds of territories. So I think, um, you know, to, to piggyback off Anna, Anna's point that the world is so much bigger than London, the UK and Europe, and we would do well to embrace all, the, all of that multiculturalism. 
Thanks, Pedro. And I think we'll probably come back to you know how how we can you know do that, and particularly how architecture um, can do that. And I'd also I think it'd be great for to maybe have some thoughts you know soon from the audience as well about from that question of what does diversity mean in terms of practice and what the role of the architect is for some of the examples that, that Pedro um, suggested. It's something I'd like to probably hear from people later. Um, Helen, I'd love to hear a bit from you in terms of obviously again how the design district you know in terms of architectural design, hugely diverse, but actually, how do you think it also reflects the other types of diversity that we've talked about, and what's the relationship between the two? Um, so I think the, the advantage we've had at the Design District with having so many different buildings is that um, the spaces have appealed to a number of different types of businesses. Um, and it may be that a particular business wants a really shady space because actually the quality of the image on their screen is absolutely key to their delivery, whereas someone else wants daylight streaming in all day long because it, you know, it does something else for them. Um, so that, that has um, been a real advantage for us, having that big mixture of different types of buildings and therefore appealing to a number of different types of businesses. But um, I can't um, avoid the topic of the cost of being in those buildings for the people who are inside them. And I think actually coming up with a, um, a model which enabled us to have a number, of, uh, a, or rather a really large range of rents available to different businesses has been the key to us to get a really diverse range of businesses in, different sizes, different people owning those businesses, different clients' viewpoints and so on. Can I ask a very personal question? Ooh, you can, you can t choose to not answer. Do those spaces need to make any money, or is it about just washing their face to use a vernacular? Um, so the headlines broadly are that um, it needs to wash its face, and at a certain point in the future, it will have to start making money, yes. Yeah. And I think that's a really you know, interesting point that would be good to pick up again here is Getting that mix of use right is also about, you know, who is there, who is paying rent, who is able to pay rent in that commercial context and how that gets sustained in the longer term. So we've talked a little bit about other cultures, but having Roger here, it would feel remiss to obviously not look at the London context, um, given that's where a lot of us here are working. And I guess just a few initial thoughts from you, Roger, about, I think, I guess, how culturally, economically... What does London mixed-use development look like? Well, thanks. It's, um, it's, uh, I've always been engaged with what I call the Badlands. And I've always been... I, mean, I, I suppose I've always been intrigued by the Badlands. It's probably because I, I grew up as a kid in the suburbs and I just, that, was the, that was the gutter from which I ran. And then I kind of found myself in these intense uh, urban environments. And I'm, I'm, I admit I'm a bit of a romantic. So I kind of, you know, there's, uh, when those derelict buildings that I used to come across all those years ago, and they've all now, a lot of them, been done. And at one stage I got kind of, uh, I got even, ended up my owning a great chunk of Liverpool, which was wonderfully derelict. And it was kind of, it's that thing where diversity in cities is about fading as well as about shining. And I suppose that what I really enjoy is the context of working at a very small scale. I sometimes call it development as art. And it really is because you're, you know, you're sculpting the opportunity or you're seeing an opportunity for a site which is left behind. 
uh, a backland site, a small site, and then you're trying to build something which then attracts. So actually, as a developer, you're trying to bring your market in, so you're having to often pioneer into areas that, where people don't normally go. And so you have a, this wonderful opportunity to see or to feel memory and to bring something fresh from the memory. And so it, I think it's that we live in a world where character is being pushed away from us. But the beauty of being in the context of uh, where we live in London, we have, we're all after character. We're after character in every day, in every transaction that we make. The internet's not very good for character, but the, the advantage of being here on the street is characters all around us. And so I suppose that my, my, my statement about diversity is look for the character and make the character splendid and make it stand out. Thank you, Roger. It's a very uh, evocative uh, opening. I'm going to, again, and I feel like I can say this because I've recently um, finished a role working for a developer. Um, I imagine there could be a critique that a lot of the time, particularly where certain uses have faded, you know, for example, I know you've done a lot of work looking at, you know, former industrial buildings, that actually mix of use or even character tends to get lost because developers tend to be, and not all, um, I think yourself being an exception, you know, tend to develop with a certain product in mind. And do you think, you know, that has been to the detriment of mixed use? You, you've got two types of mixed use, haven't you? You've got a mixed use which is a horizontal and a mixed use which is a, which is sectional mixed use. And I think sectional mixed use is, stands more chance of long-term survival. So you are, I think too often buildings, what the, my, the development industry work does is it's sort of forget, it, it, it's not an imaginative industry. It's an industry which follows its leader. So suddenly if every building under permitted development is going to become residential, every building is going to be residential. And you say, well, hang on just a sec, you know, you could make some very nice character offices here. No, it's going to be residential. And so it, 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 it's, it's, it's kind of a very blunt instrument. Whereas what I'm saying, what I think makes success is a bar like this where you have a passion or a bread shop down the road where somebody's running it as a passion. It's their passion. It's their relationship with their customers. Whatever you're doing, if it's a bike shop, whatever it is, it's, it's that that's going to make it sustainable. It's not sustainable by policy. You can't actually... You, you make buildings, in my view, through, through that passionate drive. I want to pick up on that point of imagination, and I think particularly um, for Anna here and probably um, for Pedro in dealing with, with clients, how much do you see it as your role, I guess, to bring that imagination and to maybe push the envelope and challenge the client in terms of thinking about the mix of use or diversity of design? You know, you mentioned, for example, about thinking about materials and textiles. Have you got any examples of how well that, or how well that hasn't gone in some instances? I'll, I'll start. And, uh, well, again, I, I think w there isn't really one type of a client that sort of client, clients come in different guises. They have very different uh, levels of 
ambition and interests. And I think that often they don't need our help to imagine things. Um, and, and they already jo join the sort of the design journey with uh, an, in an idea that is interesting enough. I think our role is not to necessarily help them to imagine something they haven't imagined yet, but explain the implications of what they imagine. For example, just to pick up on the point of what uh, vertical mixes might be and how buildings might work when we do want this sort of vitality and character integrated in our residential neighborhoods. We, we can help our clients to imagine buildings where we don't have to necessarily define that the ground floor is a restaurant, but we can imagine a new housing project that could evolve into something that incorporates that sort of setting where people can host events, dine together, or spend time working together. And it might mean that we don't need to help them to imagine something they know that has the kind of vertical split, which is maybe kind of more traditional way to describe mixed use, but we help them to show models that they haven't thought about, but they actually meet their sort of aspiration and ambition to achieve the diversity in a city. And this is where I think the interesting opportunity to diversify uh, located today. It's the kind of innovation that assumes future flexibility. So just in terms of examples, I think with some of my most interesting clients, we discuss future proof and flexibility in a building that can accommodate mix of use and change over time. That would be kind of my direction of travel. So, so I would say um, one of our points of departure is really looking and wanting to understand the existing people that are on, you know, that, that inhabit that place. And then that, that often leads to this word community, which is also this wide encompassing word. And, and we tend to shy away from the word community and we, and we tend to gravitate towards people. So with, with our clients, what we tend to say is we want to understand the people that are in these spaces, in this locality. And we, and we often look to champion localism. So existing uh, businesses, existing demographics, and existing ethnic minorities, and, and because we've project and it's in Wood Green and it's it's a it's a project we're doing in collaboration with Practice Architecture and it's for the Walls, Walls Lane Community Hub and the, the whole building and there's three buildings that have been designed around ideals of food education, urban urban sustainability, social sustainability and um, environmental sustainability. So it's all designed out of green materials, flexibility is built into it. But um, what, what is really interesting for me about that project is that every single stage, every single RRBA work stage, there is a social component that's built into it, not just at you know, pre-planning. So during the construction, and we're, we're currently at tendering, so tenders have gone out last week, and, and part of the evaluation process is we've, we've worked with the consortium who are two charities. Um, to the, the, the tenderers that are going to be selected have to employ local people and have to work with very specific named subgroups.
But it doesn't just end there. There's also the legacy and the management. So one of our clients is Ubeli, which is a wonderful organization that champions black charities and black businesses. And Ubeli are working with us to help organize the management of that. So that's one particular one that, that I think is, is an exemplar. Brilliant. Thank you. I wanted to bring up this point of future-proofing and, I guess, adaptability. And, Helen, we were talking before, you had, I guess, the interesting situation of arriving with more, I guess, of a focus of how these spaces are going to be run, having not yourself necessarily worked on the brief. And, you know, how have you found that in terms of how people are adapting to these spaces? And also, as you said, you mentioned you've got quite a range of different types of businesses. Is it something that is... How's, how's it going? <laughs> Uh, I think there's, there have definitely been some bits that have worked better than others, but um, to kind of lob the hand grenade into the room of architects and developers, people will make the spaces precisely what they want, and you can build whatever you like, but they're going to adapt the space to suit them and their needs. Um, and that doesn't mean that we, you know, the people in this room don't need to do the best job possible for the community that they're designing for, but um, ultimately people will m meld it to what they want it to be. And um, what, what's been one of the best things about the design district is that um, we're seeing, we, we'd hoped that we would create this big community, and I think that's really starting to happen now. But even better than that, we're seeing lots of small little communities pop up in and amongst that bigger community, which is being done completely by the people, you know, inside the spaces themselves. So communities amongst the graphic designers, communities amongst buildings, amongst floors, amongst courtyards. And so, um, it, you know, if you provide all of the, the right ingredients for it, I think the occupiers will do what they want with those spaces and make a real success of them. It's really interesting that you mentioned kind of specific urban forms for the idea of, you know, courtyards, for example. And just wondering if, you know, any of the panellists have, you know, again, whether it's from a London context or from other cities and cultures, are there particular urban forms, particularly maybe more a neighbourhood level, that do tend to encourage not just mixed use, but as we've said, that, you know, invitation to a range of uses, of activities, of communities? Roger, I feel like you may have something to say on that. Well, I, th I think I want to take it a little further because I think we're not talking here about a single set piece. So I think that we've used um, interim or um, short-term uses. And what that does is actually, when we own a piece of land and you come across it, and for a long time that can sit derelict or can sit or wait for development to take place. And we had a site in, in Union Street in, in Southwark where we ran a series of programs. Um, we started off with something called, with Exist, making something called the Southwark Lido. And what that, what that suddenly made, meant is that there was a community project for a short term on a site, completely constructed, and then the next year we did something else with a, with a garden. And, uh, and all of that helped us learn both how the site should be developed and who it was for. And so you, cut, you start to, and I think it's a not well known, but coming back to your answering your question about master plans, master plans too often are kind of set in stone. Whereas I think that cities, and particularly mixed use part, is an incremental 
i.e. it happens over time. And I think we're too frightened of owning up to that. Whereas actually your forms, whether they're courtyards, whether they're single buildings, whether they're subsidiary buildings, will start to, you should learn from that occupation. So I'm a, I'm a great believer in, if you like, incremental and actually taking temporary uses and understanding and learning from what people talk about and enjoy. I suddenly walked onto the site and there were, whatever it was, 500 people enjoying it just like that and it's a kind of it, it meant that the site itself suddenly had built its own memory actually I want to suggest one that we all know and love well in London context it's a yard and I think it's one of the most kind of simple but unbelievably instrumental organizations and you know it is very UK <laughs> it is very London so, fascinatingly, we are still thinking about it as something that allows us to innovate when it comes to question of mixing different programs and activities and uh, allowing for flexible and adaptable working and living environments. So, yeah, if I had to choose one, I think I will be voting for yard and yardens. Because we're kind of making them greener and greener. We, we think by introducing a new version of landscape into our yards is something that also allows them to kind of evolve and adapt to our new uh, preferences. Yeah. Yardens is a good one. It's the first time I've heard that. Um, we will be taking bids for other people's favourite urban form um, in addition to the yard. So uh, do get thinking on that one. Pedro, I think you wanted to, to join on there. Yeah, just a couple, couple of things to contribute. Um, I was in Italy last week and in Milan it struck me that the way they use public space around buildings, pavements, so restaurants would spill over into the, into the street, shops would open up and there was a lovely informality in the way the Italians were using public space and that it, it, was, it was not delineated in the same way we tend to think about it here in London but it's very very specific. There was a there was an ad hoc informality to it. And then the other one is in, in uh, Colombia, in Medellin, which is um, a, a world-leading case study that 20 years ago, the, the mayoral office decided to invest the largest public-funded um, projects in the most disadvantaged, disadvantaged, impoverished areas. And it was the equivalent of, of having like the new Tate in the most run-down um, uh, um, you know, crime-ridden area in London, and that's where you're going to put your jewel. And what and what that did is is it encouraged um, socio-economic regeneration, positive regeneration. It, 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 crime rates went down, land prices went up, and it became an exemplar for how in positive investment in the underrepresented and the disadvantaged can become a huge benefit for a city. Helen, did you have anything? Yeah, you look like you were waiting patiently there. Um, I, it's interesting to, to hear about the examples because I do know that those examples were talked about um, in the early stages of the planning of the design district. I wasn't there myself, but I, I, I know that some of the references came from the pavements in Milan and, and you know, old city, old towns, you know, across the world, really. And um, I think having those little nooks and crannies and pedestrianised spaces and brighter spaces, darker spaces, all of that kind of stuff really helps to 
the diverse range of spaces helps to make it more interesting and useful for the people that are actually there inside those spaces. Um, I don't think the job is done yet at the design district. definitely needs more work. And I was saying to Pedro earlier, I think actually we should probably leave quite a lot of that up to the tenants, see how they want to use it, what they get value from, and then invest in that yeah. sort of stuff to make it better for them. Yeah, and I think that's a bit of a theme that's emerging. There's a bit of a tension here between, you know, I think, Roger, your point about needing almost to be patient, letting things evolve, learning, like you said, Helen, from how people take that space and use it, but often at the same time, there is this tendency to almost want to have a finished product from the outgo and say, well, this is our new neighbourhood. It's working. It's successful. Look, it's diverse. But actually, you know, as you were saying, that, that doesn't tend to happen overnight. How, I mean, you know, Roger, how, how do you think, for example, we can, I guess, maybe learn to be a bit more patient, particularly when we're thinking about those new places, um, again, how they feel in terms of, you know, a diverse, whether it's, again, a building... Uh, you know, a series of buildings and uses around a yard or a neighbourhood? I think there's a kind of phrase called patient capitalism or patient capital. And what that really means is that we have to, when we're making our, our cities and when we're being developers and investors, in the world that's changing, you've got to decide that this is more like 20 or 30 years to actually build if you like, the kind of reality that this place becomes something which people want to come to. And if you can take that perspective, which you see in London and you see with big estates, what you're doing is you're allowing that value to happen over time. And once that happens, then you actually think that you're investing correctly and you're also not trying to kind of run before you can walk. So... Um, if we come back to Helen's point, what she's saying is quite right, is that the customer is emerging and today you may put a building in there. I've done it where you build a, an apartment building and then you change it or you put a, a, a construction building, a, you build a factory in there, you put a manufacturing and all these things suddenly start to work together. And then you, you, you come back to the yards, you've got the places to fill. And then you really have a heart, and as you say, there's a district. The district then has the heart and starts to happen. And I think that certainly our experience with what we did in, when we went to Liverpool was that we started, we created something called the Creative Industries Quarter that was a long time ago, 30 years ago. And, and then we sort of, you know, we got, I got kicked out of the city, you know, it was quite easy. You know. they didn't I like feel me, that's right. a story we may need to hear at some point, but, perhaps over a drink later. But <laughs> the, what's interesting is that the ideas for that regeneration then were picked up by other people. So it's, not, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It's like taking a baton. You throw an idea in and then actually it germinates. I often think it's gardening. I always think of my sites as just going out and putting a few decent plants in, but they're buildings, but they're encouraging the next one to live. Anna, a question for you. As someone, I guess, who both, you know, teaches and practices architecture, do you think the way, you know, particularly, again, new places or even existing places are adapted, do you think they're able to, to work at that slower, more iterative pace? Or actually, have we got a bit of a mismatched process that works in terms of maybe the goal that we want to get to? Well, I, I don't see any problem with the pace, to be honest, because 
there, are, there is a sort of layered timeline in my mind. So they might be rushing and trying to do something, and if it doesn't work, they reinvent it. And so in a way, pace is, if you imagine, I'll try to simplify it, that we keep on trying on and experimenting with the way in which we inhabit spaces, then our pace this kind of slows down, so you might do something ten yeah. times I until guess, you get it right. Yeah, and I guess probably we <clears throat> should have clarified more as well as pace, also just level of detail and specificity. Mm -hmm. You know, there is often, I think, a desire, whether it's to over to to, 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 to control or to over specify, and it could be from the best of intentions. You know, I want to give the community this space, and it's going to be amazing. Or I want to be the person that developed this, but as we've all it's, said, it's a, you it's, need a, to it's a really interesting question, and in, in the context of the what I call uh, DIY culture, you know, there is that sort of assumption that you need to provide fairly basic infrastructure. You need to put something in place that would allow people to then do their own thing. So in a way, I think there is an interesting trend that we are all experiencing, kind of the hipster style of our cities where you want to let people to inhabit and take ownership and avoid that sort of sterilized environment. And partly it's coming from us knowing that things are changing so rapidly that there is no point to finish off anything because by the time we finished the fashion is always, the trend has changed and we have different preferences. Another reason for that is obviously sustainability and our awareness of, you know, being, working differently with materials than we used to. So, you know, maybe I'm trying, I'm, I'm being too positive, but I think that the trends we are noticing today are actually very much in line with what we are suggesting should be happening. There is a framework in place, but that framework is offering flexibility and offering people to inhabit spaces in the way that suits them. That's what I'm seeing more and more um, in how we plan community buildings, in how we plan kind of speculative mixed-use offer, which leads me to the sort of idea of end-user planning and speculative planning. So it's much easier to be open-ended and flexible when we know who is coming. It becomes much more difficult and that kind of need to control and anxiety about how that uh, life will take place in a building increases when it comes to things where we have no certainty about the user. It's almost the opposite from yeah. what it should be. So I, th I think... On one hand, I'm extremely positive because I think the trend of DIY, of semi-industrial, of unfinished, of work in, progress process, work in progress architecture is there, and we're seeing it, and it makes our cities more diverse and more adaptable. On the other hand, I think we also need to be to trust more the unknown, kind of the, the unpredictable in terms of who is going to uh, use spaces and how they're going to be used. Is there anyone in the room that disagrees with Anna and her positivity um, that actually we are able to accommodate, you know, that more kind of flexible, adaptable, as you said, kind of DIY approach and who actually thinks we're probably heading towards more and more homogeneity? Thanks. Um, 
it's not that I wholly disagree, but I suppose there is a time factor. <clears throat> and, and I just wondered what the panel think about um, that sort of fleetingness, if that's the right word, the sort of fleeting aspect of diversity, both in terms of use and, um, uh, but also in terms of population, and that actually always what seems to happen is the, uh, I suppose, the sort of profit motive or the, um, <clears throat> the sort of inevitably, inevitability of popularity of that sort of development. I mean, you only have, well, you only have to look sort of round here, not too far away, once you pass all the rubbish playing round your ankles, that how, how this has changed so much over 20 years or, or so. And, <clears throat> and it, it does strike me that although we all as sort of people from the design world and, you know, urbanists love that mix and the, and the badlands, that actually there are places where those properties can quickly sort of disappear and maybe it takes quite a long cycle for them to come back again. I just wondered what you thought about that. We nominate uh, <laughs> Mr. To respond. I'm stumped. No, um, I would say that cities do change and flux is important. And, and I think economics, we, we haven't really talked about economics. We kind of skirted around the subject, but I think economics are really important in that um, other countries and other sectors have um, protected rents. So there are, there are ways or there are mechanisms to keep those existing people within those communities. So when, when the inevitable change comes, um, those that were the original pioneers that often um, helped make places cool, for want of a better phrase, can be retained. Um, and uh, the, the work of um, Christoph Lindner, Professor Lindner at UCL, is, is really quite interesting in that he, he's done a lot of work in understanding gentrification and regeneration around the globe. Um, and he, his point of view is, is coming from the art communities and how often art, art clusters are the, the canary in the coal mine for, for regeneration and or gentrification. That they move into area because rents are low and there's a lot of space. They, they start doing interesting things. Other people hear about it. The, um, land prices begin to go up and they get moved on. Um, and and as I, I was at a one of Christoph's lectures, and, and as he was speaking about this, I, I, I couldn't help but think that he's actually he's talking about art, artists, but he could be talking about ethnic minorities. You know, for example, in, in Redbridge, we have a high um, Pakistani community. In Elephant and Castle, we had, we had, in the past tense, the Latin American community. And these are, these are often um, 
ethnic groups that are contributing massively to the culture and to the economics of an area, and they just get moved on. So I think economics, if we can, if we can work out ways of making the economics work in a sustainable, economically sustainable way, and I think that's one way to go. I'd like to pick up on that because I think it's very interesting. I think that cities are more successful when they're poor than when they're rich, which is an odd thing to say. But the reality of it is that the, the, a, the, the land values and prices can fall, in which case the opportunity of occupation becomes bigger. And uh, I think there's something quite interesting going to happen in London because... Uh, we're in the middle of a kind of hiatus of um, of an office market, which has driven an awful lot of, and a, and a retail market, and a lot of accommodation that we have built is is going is tending towards redundancy, if we look at it in a perspective of 20 years, and you know not not every um, department store is going to make wonderful apartments. You know, they, they, if, you, if you look at it, they'll think about it. You know, do you really want to live on Oxford Street on what used to be John Lewis? Well, maybe I don't know. Um, but it, so, you, so actually, that redundancy gives a kind of looseness. And so, I think Sarah's point about fleeting is very interesting. It, I mean, cities are about fleeting, aren't they? So, I mean, I often remember the love affair I could have had with the girl who was on the bus that I missed and I couldn't get to it, but that's, that was fleeting and still sits in my memory. But it, So fleeting is a kind of part of the joy of the city. So I think the, the problem is that we've got all these different time periods. So you've got the redundancy building into how you remake the city because that accommodation, you've then got that very interesting idea that the city is a work in progress. And actually this idea, I'm fascinated by the idea of the half-built building. And it's what structure you can occupy, you know, can you... I'm always trying to peel away structures. Um, so you actually say, well, you know, actually what I need to do is put a frame up here and then people can occupy it. Or, or I put a garden or I set out a yard or I put a tent up. But uh, you know, I don't think we can. I don't think we can kind of uh, pretend that that's not the dynamic of the city. The dynamic city is that areas will come, areas will go, buildings will come, and buildings will go, and and the economy will actually only work where people feel comfortable in sort of nesting, if you like, or just occupying that bit, and that's where the economy of the city grows. The city. Uh, is always only about transaction. And I often tell a story about, if you say there's a real estate is a, is a coffee table. Because in a coffee table, what you're undertaking is you're making a real estate transaction by sitting at that coffee table. You're renting that coffee table for the period that you can actually hold out with your cup of coffee. So that, and all we have when we talk about the whole real estate world, it's the same thing, whether you're occupying under a, under, under a lease, whether you're in a WeWork, whether you're on a drop-down, whatever it is, whether you're in a rental accommodation or you are bought your home, you're occupying for a period of time. And that's what generates the economy. I want to pick up on this point about profit narrative and economics, because I think it's probably quite a big one, and I think I saw when it was mentioned a few heads being nodded in the audience, so I'd also love to hear from the audience on this side of things, but 
I think going back to, I think, Anna, you, you raised a really interesting point, which is when there is a feeling of uncertainty about who may use the space, the tendency is to go really specific. If things are feeling, you know, like they could be risky, you do everything you can to possibly minimise that risk. And often, you know, generally in the real estate world, that's done by looking at, well, what's sold in the past? We just need to make sure we've done absolutely everything that, that happened to those buildings that sold in the past and at a high price. And if we do that again, we should be okay. And that kind of attitude obviously then makes it quite challenging to do those, again, those half-built, those more flexible, those, you know, those more evolving places. I mean, Roger, you've talked a bit about, you know, patient capital as being, you know, one way of doing things. I mean, from the rest of the panel, are you, are you optimistic that the kind of the way that development is actually funded can sustain mixed-use development? And I can see Helen bracing herself to, uh, to join in on that one. It's a really interesting question, I think, that one. I, I um, personally have sometimes struggled with the development of the design district, which is funded by um, uh, a, a privately owned business in Hong Kong. And ultimately, um, so the design district is on Greenwich Peninsula, which will eventually become home to, I think it's 15 or 17,000 homes. And there's also a lot of commercial development there and, and schools and um, GP practices and all sorts of stuff that will eventually come. Um, so it, from a personal point of view, I've struggled with the concept of um, trying to create a space for people who work in the creative industries that is affordable to those people, that's privately backed, sort of in partnership with the GLA, more on that another time, <laughs> off recording. <laughs> uh, and, um, um, and at the same time, making it appealing and interesting to all the people that we you know, really want to have there. I think what, what's been interesting, maybe touches a little bit on the point that you were making earlier, is that um, the developers, Night Dragon, recognized early on that the Greenwich Peninsula, which is basically a massive load of car parks all around the O2, is a complete blank canvas. There is nothing there. There is no real community there yet. And their task is to work out how to build that community because they do need to sell these 17,000 homes, ultimately. And so um, that's part of the reason why the idea of the design district was born, was to help provide an identity and a focus and some really interesting activity right at the heart of what's at the heart of this bigger development. Um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question, though. <laughs> um, oh. Sorry. <laughs> really loud. Better be careful. Okay. Um, I think I'm a bit disappointed because there's been quite a lot of discussion about the the public realm and not so much the the buildings themselves or the architecture themselves. And and um, on this point of the economics, surely. Um, that housing is the key driver now, um, as as few people have touched upon, and and normally with housing development you would have, you know, the developer um, having section 106 or taxed in other ways than to sell or whatever for public infrastructure and so on, which is what the public realm might depend on because um, no one's just going to throw their money away, um, but. The other thing that Roger was saying is about the, the, the sometimes the better, more diverse things happen when the, the city's struggling or the economics are struggling a little bit. And I think 
there might be a case where that's occurring in a post-pandemic world with the lack of um, 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 useful commercial space and the rise of collective working and so on. Um, a question for the audience, uh, for the key speakers and possibly the audience as well, is would be, um, you know, I've been to some parts of the world where you can't tell if the buildings are being constructed or demolished. And within those buildings there's crafts or there's a mixture of different uses of tailor, restaurant or crab shack, um, MOT. You know, it's just bizarre kind of combinations. Um, I'd love to see that in London. A lot of people wouldn't because it's you know, potentially harmful to the public realm, to people's safety and so on. But my question to, to the, the speakers and the audience is, BC, what kind of architecture do we need to be looking at? What kind of buildings? What kind of, what's the nature of the actual uses that we can, as architects or practitioners in urbanism, is help to enable? I'm going to answer, to try to answer your question while still answering Sarah's question on flitting. <laughs> I think it's, it's a dream be... panelist. Two <laughs> questions at once. That's brilliant. In my mind, the the answer is in in uh, the theme of this talk in diversity and allowing options. So let's let's look at it from the sort of urban scale of neighborhoods, which is where Sarah's question came from and your question about buildings. So in my mind, change obviously is unavoidable. Change the only thing that we, we know that is, is about to happen and is going to happen. And when there is no change in cities, this is really not a great sign. <laughs> Something is dead. So... Um, I never feel sad when I know that um, things are changing and maybe not necessarily changing the way I want them to change as long as I have elsewhere in the same city. So London is exceptionally good at offering different neighborhoods and you don't need to be born and spend your entire life in um, Shoreditch if shortage is no longer working for you, perhaps it's working for other people, you can move around. And some of the best cities offer that sort of ex ex unbelievable diversity. And London is one of those. You, you can't believe sometimes that two neighborhoods and two boroughs exist in the same city, same culture, same country. As long as we have that and we are... We have those options. We ha can move around. Let's embrace embrace change because change would allow us all to make our, you know, take decisions and decide where we want to live, where we want to raise children, where we want to study, where we want to um, do what they call later living, <laughs> the kind of uh, stages when we get older and we need a different kind of community. And same goes to when we think about buildings, Steve, I don't think we should be looking for one answer. And while you might be feeling encouraged by those um, kind of buildings that look like they have demolished or still being constructed, other people would feel really anxious and uncomfortable in those environments. Now, again, London has all of it. I can... <laughs> 
take you on a tour in a neighborhood where those things actually do exist. Is there a crab shack that also <laughs> shares a building with a tailor? Because if you could take us there, that would be great. G- give me, uh, by the end of this talk, I'm sure I'll, I'll be able to show you on, on, uh, on the Google map. Now, I'll be really concerned if that was the only type and the only offer of London to us. But as long as that diversity is there and we can embrace it and we are not telling ourselves that there is one right answer and we all have to work for that answer, we will be fine. We'll we'll get there. Just very briefly, I'd, I'd, I'd put in, or I'd throw in the dynamic of time and life cycle that I don't believe we as architects or our architectural training in Britain we are conditioned to um, to be quite heroic and to be heroic in the worst possible sense and to be quite egotistical and then to imagine that our buildings are going to last for lifetimes in the plural when the reality is flexibility and adaptability, um, reuse, re-adaption, re- um, assembly and disassembly, these are, these are actual realities that are very rarely talked about in schools of architecture. And then when the next cohort moves into practice, we, it's just not there. That, that knowledge base is just not there. So I think that that, um, that paradigm needs to change in architectural training and in architectural practice. Time, adaptability, and reuse. And then it can, those kinds of things can happen. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree that they, they, they can happen. They do happen. I mean, Jane Jacobs talked about it in the early 1960s, about those kind of clashes of uncommon uses. And you start to see them around. You know, there's a butcher in Broadway Market that turns up as a restaurant, for instance. But where's the danger? You know, I, I watched an Anthony Bourdain documentary, an old one on Porto. And it, oh, no, it wasn't Anthony Bourdain. We were watching that and we turned over to some other travel thing that my son had picked up on. Um, anyway, they were climbing up the bridge at Porto, the big concrete one. And they're going up with the wires, and et cetera, et cetera. And it's, you know, keeping them all nice and safe. And the guide starts telling them when they're at the top how kids... In the you know before they made it safe and into a tourist attraction, kids used to go up there and cross over the the kind of narrow bits along the bridge openings, and then used to cycle or skateboard back down the bridge, and it's like you know nearly 100 meters into to the water and so on, and it reminded me as a kid, <clears throat> as a young kid sort of growing up outside Glasgow when you're first getting into, you know, playing outside, going to buildings, being out out, out and about, that um, danger's good, danger's fun. Um, the, 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 the more cities are sanitised, I think there's more of a problem. I think it goes back to what Roger's saying, there's a kind of agency of um, wanting to do stuff or engage with your environment with a bit of passion, a bit of character. And sometimes the cities don't really have that. I agree that with you, Anna, there are probably places where there is danger and it is exciting. But I wonder if there has to be more. I I want to pick up on that because we've talked, or I hear um, stories about the 15-minute city. And I think it's a very, very interesting concept. 
and I, I, it's just it's not entirely off this subject because what it means and I think certainly I've experienced much more in lockdown than I ever did before walking around wherever I am in the city and and, and actually exploring the city at a walking pace is a revelation because all these bits of the city are suddenly apparent to you you know I, 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 I'm, I'm you, you just you begin to cross the city 15 minutes crossing a city is actually a very interesting neighborhood edge and that you begin you you gain a sort of um, you gain an intimacy with the bits of that city that you really like and you go back there and then you gain another intimacy with the light in the city so the light will vary and the seasons vary when the when the trees are just blossoming as they are now or when they're dying again in in the autumn and so I all I'm really saying is that actually that notion of a neighborhood of a series of neighborhoods that you cross in 15 minutes that actually our entire occupation and use and knowledge of the city becomes something that we actually experience on our feet and therefore through our eyes then allows us to experience a variety of space. And I think what's so terrifying is the sterility of, of, of posh residential accommodation, which has no differentiation between anywhere on the globe. So those same apartments that you see in Battersea Power Station have been redeveloped, could be identical, you walk inside them in, in Hong Kong, in, in, in Singapore, in Australia, it doesn't matter where you are, they're the same thing. And that's such a sterile, disconnected experience. So what we're saying is that, I think, is that, that actually to give that diversity, you actually have to be connected through your feet, <laughs> through the city, and through the senses of your nose and your eyes. And you can, you can smell this restaurant as you're coming down the street. You're, and the spirits raise as you kind of sense what's going on, the anticipation. Can well. I bring in some cynicism to that? <laughs> Which is that actually it's less about, you know, it's, you know, again, this kind of evocation of the senses, but back again to that point on profit narrative, because it's, well, who are these flats being designed to be sold to? And just by means of anecdote, I know people probably would have heard this one, the King's Cross, some of the apartments that were down there and the gas works, um, the developers there were advised from doing anything that was circular because that would not be appealing to certain Asian target customers. So, you know, again, whilst we can, I think, have that intention for it, I think it's understanding why it's not happening in reality that becomes an important one. I also just wanted to, again, open the point up to the room. I think Pedro's point about designing for multiple timescales and with that multiple uses... Um, I'm not an architect. I don't have any training. Does anyone in the room who has either recently had training or kind of transitioned from training into practice, does the point that Pedro made resonate here with anyone? Or do they violently disagree with it? I was actually going to ask about meanwhile uses, actually, and capitalism. Thank you for saving me for that tumbleweed. Go for I'm, it. I'm sorry to not address your question, Pedro. Um, Meanwhile, use is a term I've only just come into in the last two years, and actually it's deeply, deeply cynical, I think. Um, and I was quite surprised, quite naive to hear that the design museum, uh, sorry, the design district's not going to be there forever. And it's about profit generation, isn't it? It's about, uh, so it was, yeah. No, it will be. It will, right, okay, fine. Anyway, 
but you know, a, a developer comes in, there's this grottier, gritty urban area, and okay, well, you can make a little um, thing out of this, and then, and then after a while, all the, all the rich white people move in and all that other stuff goes. So, and, I, and I guess the other point of that is, um, you said, I think there was some point about anti-policy or something, and clearly capitalism's not going to solve this. So at what point does policy come in and help these things come in so we don't have, um, I guess, a coster on every street corner? Or prep, uh, you know. So where's that balance between it? I think is probably my question: yeah. policy versus profit. Yeah. I think that policy point is a really interesting one. And do any panelists have any thought on that? Can we can we legislate to have a certain level of mixed use or diversity by design? Do we do it already? Does it work? I'll have a go. I mean, it's a really fascinating point. It's a very complex point, though, I think. I th and from my um, uninformed, humble perspective, I think that there are lots of, lots of different forces at play. So planning policy is one. You know, the, 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 the encouragement to build at high density, at... Um, Regeneration is sold as something that's going to be this big economic miracle, and that—that's really over decades of mal policy, right? Over various governments, over various administrations, and and the the, the effect is um, very very apparent in tragedies such as the Grenfell, the fire of Grenfell, you know, the Grenfell tragedy, and. Disproportionately, it affects the underrepresented, the socioeconomically challenged, the ethnically diverse. So it's a, it's a very intersectional topic. Um, I I think as a society we need to be bolder and braver. In, in in and it's not about being an activist and it's not about marches. I think it's about saying we've had enough and we demand change. In, in a similar way to the way to to how the world has woken up to the climate emergency, the, um, um, social justice and climate justice go hand in hand. Those two things are interlinked. Um, so it's now generally accepted that you know there's a climate emergency going on, and we need we as a collective um, species need to do something about it otherwise we're going to become extinct so that's generally accepted not always but generally accepted but the social um, emergency isn't and I think that's the thing that needs to change in the zeitgeist and it needs to become um, spoken about it needs to be uh, we need to shine a light on it and and I, I, I don't think it's a, it's a very complex thing partly to do with economics partly to do with policy also partly to do with taste I think, I think also we're in a bit of a delusional bubble in London. We think we're the best. We're not. You know, we, we, it's very, very easy to think that there's a there's a London privilege that isn't really talked about by Londoners or acknowledged. I think we need to get our heads out of the sand. All you have to do is go to another European city. Like I said, I was I was in Milan and Venice last week thinking these cities are amazing. Whenever I go to, to Latin America, to South America, to Bogota, uh, to Medellin, to Cali, I, I think this is incredible what they do. It's visionary and innovative. They just widen their pavements. You know, little things like that. <laughs> <laughs> um,
You mentioned Venice. Venice is a uh, god. So many enemies I'm going to make in this audience, but it exactly represents for me the, the city where there is no change, and it, I find it the most depressing uh, place on the planet. It, well, it, not not much can happen there, Pedro. Venice. <laughs> not much change is actually possible. I guess pave, pavement we can still uh, modify. Sorry, I'm, it's it's beautiful. It just makes me really sad. I, I do want to answer the, the policy, uh, to try to respond to the policy question because I have a very complicated relationship with the question of policy and policy making because, you know, we need policy and it's, it's, it's there to help us all. But in this forum I can uh, admit that my sense is always that it's at least 10 years behind and I'm not, I don't have an answer. That's why I'm trying not to look that way. I kind of treat it as something that is there and has. we have to um, be respectful of, but it's certainly not helping us. It's behind things like meanwhile is uh, popping up and, and there are, and meanwhile is just one instrument to try to address the, the gap between what we need today and how rapidly things have to change today and the trends and drivers for change and then where the policy is still located and how it describes what we can do when we are trying to create mixed use. Even the fact that we use the terminology of mixed use is a fairly old-fashioned <laughs> terminology, but I promised uh, Steve to get into the, the, that worked or been specifically flexible or adaptable. Helen, um, talk us through with policy a little bit. Well, it's quite new to me, policy. Um, so, Lucky you. Yeah, thank God. Um, and the one thing that I've really noticed about it is that it doesn't work unless you find someone who can actually put it into practice. So it's basically a piece of paper until that particular moment. And um, uh, I think that's where the economic thing comes in as well, actually, is that if you can find developers or funding partners who are willing to fund putting stuff into practice, policy or whatever else it might be, then um, it's all slightly academicless even. Um, but the meanwhile thing is also an interesting one. It's, it, it's um, often dressed up as an interesting opportunity and all of the rest of it. And the reality is, is that it's a massive financial burden on the poor soul that's been convinced that it's the right thing to do. And um, I've noticed that um, for a lot of the creative businesses who have come into the design district, and you talk to them about where they've been and their experiences in their previous locations, the, um, often it will be temporary space, so just for sh sort of relatively short periods of time, and the cost to their business of going in and out of those spaces is absolutely colossal because it's not just about 
the moving costs and the change in the website and all of the rest of it is the hours that are lost relocating. It's about the customers that you win and lose depending on where your locations are. It's about your, your perception to your customer base as well from having all of your changing addresses and so on. So um, I'm all for banning it, yeah. It's got to, I think giving people somewhere permanent where they can lay root their bricks and mortar and really focus on what their true creative output is, or I deal with the creative industry, so it is a creative output, but whatever their output is, I think makes the biggest difference. And do you think that would have a positive impact on diversity of users more generally? Obviously, I know you're talking about creative businesses, but if we apply that, maybe, for example, some of the organisations Pedro mentioned, Absolutely. You know, how do we get that balance between permanency, but also flexibility and adaptability as well? Well, I, I think what you'll, you'll find is that many businesses, particularly in the creative industries, flex and adapt anyway, because they will change with the needs of their market, their audience, their customer. And so you will get that regardless. Um, the other thing that you do by getting rid of the whole meanwhile model is that you are automatically making your space available to um, organisations that have alternative funding to straight up commerce. So if you're a charity or a CIC or any kind of other type of construct, it's very difficult to secure funding if you don't have a lease that's more than five years long. And if you can't attract those sorts of businesses, then you can't attract the communities that those people appeal to, and then you might as well go home. And meanwhile use. You heard it here first. Um, right, Roger, I feel we may be at risk of... I've obviously got to back away from that, haven't I, really? But I, I, I wanted to touch on something else which is policy, and it happens in other places, but doesn't happen much in, in the UK, which is the cooperative movement, which happened a lot in America, was actually been going on for over 100 years in America. And I think is a really what what's interesting about the what I think is a real opportunity in the cooperative movement is it actually you're taking control of a bit of the city and I think what's so difficult about urbanism is that so many other people have got control and if you're occupying it you don't have control and it, yes okay if you follow a kind of lunatic route becoming going from being an architect to developer you get a bit more control but it's a slow process but i think the kind, i think the, the the notion of cooperative movements that can be more ambitious about making um, buildings or occupying spaces for both living and working in the same environment is a really interesting one because it, 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 you were, it, unfortunately housing associations started off as a bit as a cooperative movement but then through the kind of institutional life they got absorbed and now they're even more rulemaking, the most rulemaking imagination whereas the notion of actually being able to take hold of a bit of the city and between you and, and colleagues and friends can cooperatively develop that, then you can actually choose to live in a half-built structure or you can choose to live in a basement structure with no light or you can choose to live in that perfect imagined bathroom with its shiny thing. At least you have that diversity because you're actually making the decisions. So I think it's back to how we control and so my, my nervousness and my horror of policy, which I fought for too many years to claim, is, is it is a top-down framework that is incredibly uncreative. And I like to think that you're individually, your creativity that you look at when you make a building or make a structure or make a use is, doesn't need that 
domination of a, a rule-based policy. Brilliant. I want to pick up on Steve's point, which I dangerously thought was going to veer into a, there's just too much health and safety these days. But um, I think there was an important point raised, I guess, about, and it's, again, I guess, goes back to this point of control and maybe taking it more into the idea of, you know, who does control how these spaces actually operate and evolve. Well, I won't kind of go over too much into the economics because I think we could get into some quite uh, wide and interesting territory there. But, you know, one word we hear quite a lot now, whether it's actually, whether in specific mixed-use buildings, but also in new neighbourhoods, districts even, is this idea of curation. Um, and it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a loaded term. And I was just wondering if any of the panellists, but also any of the audiences, had any thought on, I guess, how we feel about this word, is it a word that you instinctively hear and kind of think, ugh, um, but actually who should be doing it as well and how important is this idea of proactive curation in maintaining mixed-use spaces in the longer term? So I'll go to the panel first, whilst I'm sure hopefully a few people in the audience will jump in too. I can talk a little about, bit about it from the point of view of what we've done at the design district. Um, I've um, resolutely avoided the term curation because personally I find it a bit too controlled but what we did do was to really diversify the leasing um, model which basically means we've got some really cheap rents and some really expensive rents and a whole bunch of stuff in the middle and by having a really wide range of rents available you can automatically attract a wide range of businesses because inevitably different parts of the creative industries are more or less profitable and therefore able to pay more or less on their rent. So I suppose there is a bit of control in that, but um, I'd like to think it's not as curated as kind of picking out specific businesses or industries. Pedro, you've mentioned, I guess, the role of communities and how important also understanding who's going to be using these spaces. How do you see communities playing a role in curation? Well, they have to be given a voice. And at the moment, the... Um, the commercial pressures of, of developments don't naturally gravitate that way. And, and any kind of community consultation or public engagement is often a tick-boxing exercise and it needs to be meaningful and it needs to be, it needs to have processes built into it that are, that are genuine. And this is where the societal shift, I think, needs to happen. Um, and, and, and perhaps it's a move away from capitalism or, or not. I, the, the, the truth is we don't know, right? Because we haven't, as, as a modern Western society, we haven't trialed any other methods significantly. Um, but I would, on, on, the, on the theme of curation, I think that we would do well in London to look at the global south and to how other communities and other cultural structures work around this. And, and one, one particularly interesting one is um, Alejandro Aravena's in, in Chile, the, the half house that you know that was so celebrated a few years ago, and the reason that captured the imagination around the world was because it was based. It was actually based on economics. The, um, he was commissioned by a developer, or his practice was commissioned by a developer to design some um, afford, genuinely affordable housing in uh, a low-income area. And and through his design team, they came to the conclusion that we don't have enough. We can't if we design a house. The, the incomes will not be able to afford this. What we can actually afford to design is half a house, and therefore that became the answer. And the architect removed the ego, and then it was open to the, to the eventual um, owners 
to grow at their capacity. And I think that model could be translated to commercial, that model could be translated to cultural. So, and that's coming out of South America, Latin America. I think as, as, as a society here in, in Britain, we, we are too privileged and we need to be looking at the global south as innovators. That would be my idea. Would you agree, guys, that this is a curated event? Are we, are we in agreement? Right. Quite nice, isn't it? <laughs> um, so sorry for all this positivism and bringing, you know, for me, curatorial practice, I understand it as one that, you know, has a, a really important role to play in trying to orchestrate different types of um, content that isn't generated by the ones who are actually orchestrating it and curating it necessarily, but it's the group or an individual with a vision, capacity, skills, and ability to pull together something for others, for a larger community, and it can happen across, you know, it can be a very small, intimate, and lovely family event that is curated. And it can also be what I think, Kate, you were talking about, sort of serviced projects, large serviced um, environments for living or for working. Now, it can be done really well and exceptionally well for greater benefit, and it can be a disaster. So I, I guess I love thinking about different curatorial practices because I think what they allowed us to see in the last decade was greater diversification of um, public offer. There are all sorts of collective formations and crossovers between disciplines and fields. And here's one example that we haven't seen before. And, and when it happens at a large scale, it's wonderful, but it also sometimes doesn't succeed, which, you know, you have great exhibitions at Tate and then you have really kind of unfortunate exhibitions in the same incredible institution. So, yeah, I, I, I think there is no problem with the practice of curation and the fact that we borrowed that terminology and we are using it in urbanism at all. I, I think we kind of need to go to that uh, next question of when it succeeds, when it fails, when things become so trendy and artificial and superficial that... Oh. <laughs> I'll come back to that point of what success looks like, but I think there's a gentleman lurking behind the flowers who has a question. when 
I think, sadly, the answer to that is probably yes. And I think we'd, we'd agree with you that once things go to Resi, they generally tend to stay there. Though um, maybe Roger might have some examples otherwise. I think, again, on that point of, you know, again, we've talked about flexibility, adaptability, but actually, you know, your point almost seems to be too much flexibility and adaptability without any sort of policy control could actually be detrimental, not just to actually having a mix of use, because it's good to have a mix of uses, but actually how places feel, and, you know, from a human perspective. Just wondering if any of the panel have any thoughts on that. Um, I, I was going to touch on narrative rather than curation, curator. So, in, in other words, we haven't... Another aspect, if you like, is the the narrative that you build around um, any kind of development or any kind of place is a narrative that actually also protects it. So I think your point made about the the galloping rate of, of um, translation, permitted development translation to residential. Residential blocks any change. You very rarely see it once, well, even the least structures make it very difficult to change residential into any other use. So I think the narrative about how you evolve um, uh, mixed use and then how you kind of let it carry on evolving to give a freedom is a very important one. And so I think narrative is more... Narrative, in, the, in, in certainly in our industries, in the, in, the, um, in the development industry, is a kind of... is a marketing tool, and we need to persuade... We don't, you know, sometimes we have to tell people it's a, an urban grit situation. Other times they have to tell them it's a, lux, a luxurious apartment. I, I've always I think the word to... grit is probably one of my most hated terms that I heard quite a lot in a previous role. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I think luxury is all... I've always wanted to... I wanted to, I wanted to have the cheek to put a marketing campaign saying my, my apartments are not luxurious. Yes. They're inclusive and not luxurious, rather than exclusive and luxurious. I'm going to bring um, Pedro in, and then I think, am I right? I think we had a question there. Yeah. Is it on? Can you hear me now? So the, the point about who designs our cities, and Roger, you made the point earlier about a lot of developments lacking character and and, and being you know, um, nondescript and the same thing we see in Sydney, we see here and we see in Amsterdam. And, and I, so I, I agreed to sit on the talk because Rob Fien, Rob, shout out to Rob, where are you? Somewhere. So lurking behind the flowers. It's where it the cool doesn't people want, hang doesn't out. Like yeah. attention, obviously. <laughs> um, so Rob asked me and I, and I, and I agreed on the point of, so my, my definition of diversity is ethnic diversity on this panel. And I think as a profession, well, I passionately believe that as a profession, we need to broaden our representation because otherwise we're going to get that monoculture again. And that's one of the big reasons I think that we're getting the same homogeny over and over and over again because of a lack of lived experience, a lack of ethnic diversity, a lack of multiculturalism, which is really what London is celebrated for. But our industry is massively failing. So until we begin to address and change that, I don't think much is going to change. 
As totally impartial chair, I'd have to 100% agree with you on the point of diversity is who is making those decisions, particularly around curation, particularly when we think about retail, F&B, what makes a place popular. That is generally defined by a pretty narrow type of person, and I won't go into more detail on that because I might end up being a bit rude, but I'm just, I am going to make sure we go back to the audience on this one, and then I'll pass back to Roger. Do you have a microphone ready? Hello. Thanks, Steve. Um, very quick point before I go into what I want to say, which is that I think that a lot of resi is going to be abandoned in the next 30, 40 years, and it might well come back and be something else, so don't despair. Um, I do a lot of work with councils, and what I experience when I talk to councils who have lots of nice town centre land is this. They've got their lawyers saying... Um, could you sell that land for the most money you can, please? They've got agents, and we all know their names, uh, who say, don't take a risk, do retirement housing there. Um, that will make you the most money, and it will be the least scary for all of us. Um, they also have developers that say, we don't do mixed use, we don't know how to do that. We've got short-term money that wants to do something. We don't know how to do that funny ground floor stuff, go away. Um, but there are some mixed-use developers, but those don't tend to be the people that are on the end of the agent's telephones. Um, so the poor old councils are going out to kind of try and get a fantastic curated mixed-use thing that's going to be young people and vibrant and all that kind of thing. And the supply chain is just simply not set up to deliver them uh, what they want, and their lawyers and agents are telling them to do something else. And the the piece of the puzzle that's missing, well, there's two pieces, really. One is this whole business of operators. Nobody really understands who operators are. You know, who runs that funky bit of Peckham that everyone in this room has been to? Nobody really knows, weirdly. It's Copeland Park Limited or something. Who are they? And how did the owner find them? And how do they... So there's operators which councils don't understand but really need to understand and actually developers need to understand them too and then there's covenants you know of course you can make things affordable forever you know there's loads of housing like that in London shed loads of it why can't we do that with um, uh, non-resi space uh, and you can put covenants in around you know um, how affordable the space is uh, the diversity of people that you want uh, in the spaces so there's a there's a sort of piece of this puzzle that people who own land don't understand, and it's operators and it's covenants and tenants. The people who've done this for 400 years are the great estates, and I know that's a really tedious thing to say because they're all, you know, a bit posh now, and they're not really about the kind of spaces we're talking about, but they have, for 400 years, changed the uses of their buildings substantially uh, and been extremely successful in it, and they still do it. They still try and keep places... Uh, mixed. So I think we need a new generation of estate agents who genuinely help public sector people deliver those kind of much more affordable mixed-use spaces that are needed. I don't know if you agree with that, uh, Roger, in particular, um, but this, the whole supply chain of what's going on is not set up to help great landowners deliver those the spaces we're talking about. Well, it's a very good point. I mean, the, the, the issue is that we, the... the the economics is divided between um, completing a development and selling it, B, 
because the funding that you have is a funding which has to be repaid because you're highly geared and, and you have two years or you have three years to acquire the site, build the building and sell it on. And, and there isn't any, you have no other choice. And then as you talk about the great estates, they've of course owned those buildings for many years and what they're looking for is a stream of income. And they all, I mean, if we, we all, I'm sure in this room, have all read Thomas Cubitt. Well, if you haven't, it's a good read. Anyway, Thomas Cubitt set it all out. And, and it was at the time of the long leasehold, which is now a kind of a forgotten and, and a much maligned uh, form of structure, allowed um, or, or created a situation where you would build a building, pay for the building on the land belonging to the great estates and build it to a specification that in a hundred years time they would get a building back that they wanted. And that was, those were sets of, of structures which were income streams. And what we're now talking about, the only income stream that you can gain from development is through rental, whether that rental is for an hour, for a year, for ten years. And therefore your, your need or your investment, if you're looking for that rental stream, into keeping reinvigorating it, actually is aligned with what we're talking about in terms of mixed-use cities. But we, do, we don't have enough of the kind of, if you like, the kind of, um, that's back to the patient capital. We don't have enough uh, investors who are prepared to understand, to take the risks. You know, it's very interesting if you, I mean, you might think there's a bit of a kind of fancy curation, but Chilton Street, um, which is part of the Portman Estate, um, looked to try and compete with Marlebone High Street and did it with a, through a, a positive curation of the type of small units that they brought there and the attraction, and, and, it's, and it's great. It, it's, it's, it works. And so I think that that can work, but we have to kind of find more ways of dealing with patient capital and have longevity in the thought and the way in which we think of our cities. Yeah, it's almost, I think, not just the, the capital, but also the kind of stakeholder side of it as well in terms of that... And that management. Yeah. On that management point, I'd love to hear um, from Helen. He talks about operators, and I think that's a really interesting point because we, you know, I think there is probably few things more depressing um, than unused ground floor uses. Um, I live in Hackney Wick, and it is absolutely plagued with them, and it drives me mad. And I'm sure people here feel the same. Where, you know, when we talk about operators, you know, Helen, what, what does that mean in terms of skill set? In terms of you know what success looks like and I guess we might ask, how do we find more people like you um, that can do that? Where are these people that are going to come from if we are having all these brilliant, new, mixed, flexible spaces? Who is responsible, I guess, on that more day-to-day side of really making them work? Um, I think it's basically anyone who understands the, the industry that you're trying to attract. So the only qualification that I have for, have for doing the job that I do now is that... I've worked for a lot of creative businesses, smaller ones, bigger ones, and, and you know all, all of the ones in between. And um, I understand their um, charging structures. I understand what percentage profit they're running at. And I understand, therefore, how much they're able to pay on their rent and what they're looking for out of their studio space. And I think if you can f seek out somebody who can paint that picture for you, um, 
then you, you will quickly understand whether or not these ground floor spaces are going to work for that industry or, or another one. Um, the patient capital then comes in because what you then need is somebody who is willing to um, work with a, uh, an occupier of that space who's got a certain amount of money to spend on their rent and not a penny more, typically. <laughs> um, so I think, it, you, you know, it's being realistic about what revenues you can generate, what yield you can get from your space and from which industry. So if, if, if you're setting your expectations either on an industry or on a yield, then make sure you're matching them up and don't, don't you know, don't have that disparity between the two. Basically, probably look outside of the typical property industry type people and go straight to the people that have worked in those industries. So you mean it's not estate agents or developers? It's definitely not. Okay, <laughs> noted. Um, I'm going to kind of ex expand that question slightly as a sort of final question of the evening, which is, I guess, what is needed to make sure these mixed-use spaces you know, work in the long time, whether that is about the operation sides, whether it is about the, you know, making sure the community stay involved. So just invite the panel to, to give a couple of closing thoughts on that. Like, I'll, I'll That's go. you, I'm Pedro. <laughs> then I'm going to hand over. Um, I think uh, a really heavy dose of realism and to hold steady, look for a long-term plan that's going to work well and you will you will get much better results don't go for those quick wins so i would say genuine community participation in the process genuine and a broader diversity ethnic diversity in the design team I would say inventiveness on our behalf as designers and urbanists and all the people who have a say in the way in which our cities are going to look like in the next 10 years. If we will be able to show new models and models that we think are the right models, we will be able to modify policy or help policy to catch up with what we think is right. And most importantly, I think we will stop trying to save the things that no longer belong in the present, such as high streets with all this dead and, uh, and things you are describing as, you know, hopeless attempts to make things work that just can't work. If we will invent things that we believe in, we will be able to fight that sort of past that is not helping us anymore with the kind of mixed use we are hoping to live in. Um, my view is it's an example. I think, it, I think it's extraordinary how a very small example of something exciting draws such attention. I mean, London's a very brilliant city for kind of knowing what's happening wherever you are in a different part of London. And actually, the social media then enables you to go and see it. And so that, that, I think, encourages all of us. You don't have to be a developer or an architect. You just have to have a kind of commitment to wanting to change something. And I think it's that entrepreneurial drive that actually reinvents our city through uh, example, through people doing things which we never thought possible. And then suddenly when they're there, when we do realize that they are possible, and they then, then they, they get plagiarized, but in fact, it's a, quite a kind of interesting way that you see it diversify. Brilliant, thank you so much. Um, 
Thank you to our whole panel. That um, you've been brilliant. Um, you've answered a lot of questions, um, which has been great. Thank you so much to the audience as well um, for your um, for your questions and input as well. I'm going to pass back. I don't know if anyone from the Force Space team yeah, probably got a bit about the next event, so I'll pass over to you, Hugh. Yeah, thanks, Kat. Um, thank you to Helen, Pedro, Anna, Roger, and yourself, of course, for hosting a very interesting debate. Um, yeah, we're back on the 24th of May for the next one. Um, but please hang around as long as you feel you want to. Um, we like to sort of prolong the, uh, the chat after the, uh, the actual talk. So uh, and these guys need to get some food anyway. So uh, the last to eat. So, um, yeah, please hang around and, um, yeah, hope to see you next time. Cheers. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.